One of our hymns says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. And that is an apt summary of the text that is in front of us this morning. In Matthew 27, we're going to read about the account of Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. We had a reference to Pontius Pilate in the creed that we recited this morning, the Apostles' Creed. This ancient man, Pilate, from the Ponti family, was the fifth governor of uh, the Roman province of Judea. He served for about 10 years under the emperor Tiberius, uh, Tiberius Augustus Caesar. And it was probably about halfway through his reign, uh, through his uh, governorship or his prefectship, that uh, he ended up having the unhappy task of seeing over the trial of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Pilate usually had his headquarters in Caesarea, which is a coastal city um, near the Mediterranean. Many years ago, I went to Israel and I toured the ancient city of Caesarea, and there, carved into one of the stones, was discovered the name of Pontius Pilate, uh, still calling out to us from all of those ages past. This man um, was the prefect of the area, and during the times where the Jews were having their festivals, where hundreds of thousands of extra people were flooded into the city of Jerusalem, Pilate would leave his palace in Caesarea and travel inland to the capital city of Jerusalem, where all of these um, gatherings would be taking place. And of course, during the times of the Jewish festivals, it was usually a heightened time of tension among people, and especially between the Jews and the Romans. And so his presence there in Jerusalem was meant to help keep the peace um, in a more uh, dramatic fashion. Now, throughout the previous evening and on into the morning, really, Jesus had been standing trial or being interrogated by the Jews. Various parts of the Sanhedrin had gathered early on, and then throughout the night, others came and joined them until in the morning, the entire uh, Jewish council was convened together to decide how to frame the case to present before the Roman authorities. And that's where we pick up our reading here this morning, where the text is actually begin, begins in verse 11. But to get the context, we'll just read the first two verses as well. So Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And now if you drop down to verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. 
so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife had sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This trial, um, as best we know, probably took place on the northwestern corner of the Temple Mount area, right outside there. There was a a, a Roman fortress called the Fortress of Antonia, and it was also near that spot where the Sanhedrin met in the Hall of Hewn Stones. And so this is the kind of the place where Jew and Gentile came together, so to speak. Pilate interacts with the chief priests and the scribes there um, in between his... Uh, council chambers, again, probably in that building, and then outside immediately on the pavement in front of that place uh, because the Bible says that the Jews would not enter into that Gentile uh, place because it was the Passover season, the season of unleavened bread, and they wished to continue to eat the Passover. Matthew's version of this trial of our Lord is very condensed. Um, You can read more in the Gospel of Luke and John in particular that really fill this out. Um, But if you'll just kind of allow me to set it up with those passages, I think it'll help this one have um, set it in its its context for us. Um, In John, uh, we read that Pilate uh, said when they first came, what accusation do you bring against this prisoner? And the Jews answered this way. If he hadn't done anything wrong, we wouldn't be bringing him to you. And what's going on here, I think, is that they're looking for Pilate to rubber stamp their actions because the Jewish Sanhedrin views themselves as the 
proper authority over Jewish matters, not the Roman governor. And you can hear in their back and forth between uh, themselves and the governor this sort of political power struggle, um, maybe like two different department heads struggling in the office uh, over uh, politics, but who yet need one another in order to really accomplish anything. And so Pilate turns to the Jewish leadership and he says, well, then you take him away and judge him by your own law, which he knows is a dig on them because they don't have, under the Roman Empire, they don't have any longer the authority to put people to death. They have to do that through Rome. And so they're forced to concede and, in fact, forced then to actually present some kind of case before Pilate. Mark says that when they started to do so, they began to accuse him of many things. And Luke tells us of some of the specific accusations that were made in that courtyard. Luke chapter 23, verse 2, they say, We found him, we found this man misleading our nation, which of course is hardly conclusive. And then they said, He's also forbidden us to give tribute to Caesar, which was patently false. In fact, that very week, Jesus had said, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, and produce the coins. And then they said, and he has called himself the Christ, a king. And that's the one, of course, that triggers interest in the mind of Pilate. Because there's a long history here of tensions between Jerusalem and Rome. In fact, of course, you know that one of Jesus' own disciples was a former zealot. That is, one of those who was an advocate of armed uprising against Rome to throw off the uh, shackles of that evil empire. And so any talk of a Jewish king would no doubt make uh, Rome nervous and certainly made Pilate nervous. In fact, he would later be dismissed uh, from his uh, position uh, because of what, Rome considered his mismanagement of a situation that happened up in Samaria. So he was nervous about upon hearing this, and so he went into his chambers, and having had Jesus brought to him, Pilate began to interrogate our Lord privately, and John in his gospel records uh, much more of that interaction between Jesus and Pilate. Matthew really focuses on one single issue that was at stake in that conversation. And you can see it in verse 11 here. Pilate, the governor, asked Jesus, saying, Are you the, what? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. Now, this, the issue of Jesus' kingship, has been front and center throughout this entire gospel, hasn't it? We have seen that Matthew has made this the, the major theme that ties together his whole gospel. 
Back in chapter 1, he began by tracing Jesus' lineage back to King David, the greatest of all Jewish kings, the king to whom was promised a lineage, a, a descendant who would sit on the throne forever and ever, whose kingdom would cover the entire globe. Matthew begins by saying Jesus is connected to King David. In chapter 2, of course, the wise men come, and their question is, where is the one who is born the king of the Jews? Move to chapter 3. John's message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the very next chapter, Jesus begins his public ministry with the same exact message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapters 5 and 6 and 7, Jesus begins to preach extensively about the nature of God's kingdom. In chapter 13, he told a whole series of six or seven parables about the king and the kingdom. Later, he promised the disciples that they would hold the keys to the kingdom. And then he told them, you will see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. And then... Of course, it finally came to that day when he rode into Jerusalem in such a way as to fulfill the ancient prophecy of Zechariah, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And there in Jerusalem, Jesus continued to teach about the kingdom of God in such a way that made it clear that he would be given Sovereign authority over that kingdom. And so Pilate asks the question, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, You have said it. But this is not the kind of kingdom that you're thinking of, Pilate. And John tells us in John chapter 18 that Jesus went on to describe that kingdom to some degree before Pilate. Jesus said this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. In other words, what Jesus did with Pilate in that hall all those years ago was to speak to him about the, 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 the source or the origin of his authority as king. And his point was that the source of his kingship was not from earth, but it was from heaven. It was from God. It was not from the world. In fact, you remember that the world tried to make him a king at one point, and he disappeared out of their midst. No, this king would be enthroned by none other than God himself. It would be the kingdom of God over which Christ would be established. And so Jesus' servants never needed to resort and never need now to resort to physical violence or an earthly show of force in order to advance his kingdom. This is a lesson, of course, the church has forgotten from time to time. And his enthronement would come when he ascended in the clouds to heaven 
and was seated at God's own right hand in fulfillment of the, the vision that, that was given in Daniel chapter 7, which Jesus has already made allusion to. Jesus would be enthroned in heaven, invisible to all but those with spiritual eyes to see that that he is ruling and reigning over all. His kingdom would be in another dimension, as it were. And yet today, right now, he is exercising his reign in this world for the eternal good of all of his subjects. And his royal, loyal followers are living out their faith in that invisible sovereign and following his directives and defending his honor and spreading his fame and living by his values. As Calvin said, the job of Christians is to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible in this world because we're living under that kingdom. And as we do so, that kingdom is made manifest until one day, until one day when that kingdom is fully revealed when it is manifest, when the veil is finally lifted, when everyone sees the king, when the king comes and he is present and that parallel dimension is now visible to all. And when the king appears, what is, in, what is once not able to be seen will now be made manifest and the works of men will be consumed and all that is done for the kingdom will shine like gold tried in a furnace forever and ever and ever. That day is coming. Jesus is referring to that kind of kingdom, that kingdom that is already and not yet, but it is not from this world. It is the kingdom of God that is coming down as a gift from God to man. Now, Pilate, hearing this, I'm sure he didn't have eyes to see all of that. He didn't have ears to take it in, to really grasp it and understand it. But one thing he did determine after listening to Jesus was that this is a man without fault, that these charges are baseless, without merit, and that Jesus is no threat to the uh, uh, physical violence to the, to the empire. And so he brings Jesus back out from the place of interrogation and speaks to the Jewish leadership saying, I find no guilt in this man. But Luke tells us that they were, in fact, more urgent, saying he stirs up the people. He's the instigator of an insurrection. And that insurrection, I mean, he stirred up people from Galilee all the way down here to Jerusalem and Judea. And they continue to make all kinds of accusations throwing things against the wall, hoping something will stick, right? And so verse 12 says that when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said, do you not hear what they testify against you? But he didn't give any answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, having heard the people say that he stirred up trouble in Galilee, Pilate saw a way out for him. And I think throughout this, you have to understand that Pilate's a man who feels like he's been put in a spot. And he's looking for a way out. 
And he figures that his way out is to send Jesus to Herod, who is in charge of the district of Galilee. And Herod happens to be in town, in Jerusalem, for the feast. And so Pilate sends him over to Herod, who is anxious to speak to Christ, and yet who finds him without guilt and sends him back to Pilate. And now Pilate brings him again before the Jewish leadership and says, listen, I don't find any guilt in this man. Herod has tried him and has found no guilt in him. And so I will scourge him, I will have him whipped, and I will release him. And yet the people demanded, demanded his death. And so I think it's probably at that point, and and again, you have to sort of weave the texts of the New Testament together, these gospel accounts, but I think it's then at that point that, that he begins to hatch another plan, another way out. And we read about that in the second paragraph that's in front of us. Uh, Apparently at the feast of the Passover, there was a custom for the governor to grant amnesty to any one condemned criminal. And in fact, there was a person in the jails who was a, quote, notorious prisoner named Barabbas. In fact, Luke tells us exactly what he was incarcerated for. He says that he was in prison for starting an insurrection and for murder. And so Pilate knew that this man, Barabbas, would be a most unappealing candidate for amnesty to the Jewish leadership. Because while, of course, a lot of the common people were uh, zealous against Rome and were um, were favorable toward the uh, violent overthrow of the empire, the Jewish leadership certainly was not. In fact, they wanted more than anything peace with the Roman powers that be because that was their security, right? That was their job. Uh, that, that, was, that meant that they could continue to, to have their positions and to have their power and not be jeopardized. And so the last person that they would want to be uh, sympathetic to would be an insurrectionist. And Pilate knows that, and that's exactly why he put Barabbas forward. In fact, verse 18 gives us an insight into Pilate's thinking. It says that he did this because he knew that it was actually only out of envy that the Jewish leaders had delivered Jesus over to be crucified. It wasn't that they knew that he was guilty or even believed that he was guilty. It was out of envy for the fact that Christ had begun to gain a more avid following than than they had. And so the Bible says that Pilate, knowing this, seeing through their charade, discerning their true motives, puts before them this impossible choice. And of course, in addition to seeing what really is motivating them, he also is um, informed of something by his wife who sends a message to him, apparently, while he is actually on the judgment seat conducting this hearing. And someone comes and taps him on the shoulder, your wife has a message. And the wife's message is this, don't have anything to do with this man. 
because I've been having these ominous dreams about him, and I just know it's bad news to mess with him. This is a sign from the gods. And, of course, all of this is happening under the providence of our God, so that, in fact, ironically, this pagan Gentile woman ends up with more spiritual discernment than the quote-unquote spiritual leaders of Israel. And so, with all of this in mind, Pilate is trying to dissuade the Jewish leaders from what they are intent on doing, that is to kill an innocent man. And he does so by offering them an unacceptable option. It's either Jesus or this insurrectionist. You're going to be sympathetic to an enemy of Rome. And I'm sure that he was shocked when the people, being stirred up by the chief priests and the elders, said, give us Jesus. I mean, give us Barabbas and take Jesus to be crucified. That was the last thing that Pilate would have expected for them to do. And so, the Bible tells us in John chapter 19 that Pilate made one last attempt to subvert this miscarriage of justice in the crucifixion of an innocent man. And he went through with his earlier uh, threat or his earlier offer that he would have Jesus flogged. And, And they took our Lord and they brought him before the Roman soldiers, and these Roman soldiers flogged him. And bleeding and weak, they dragged Jesus back out before the Jewish leadership, and Pilate said, look, here's your king. Look at this man. Behold the man. I think Surely in an effort to elicit some kind of pity or some pang of conscience in them? Look, look, look at this weak, broken person. What more do you want to do with him? Is not your envy satisfied yet? Right? Are you really going to demand that this person who is no threat to you be killed for something he didn't do? And yet that's exactly what they demanded. And they went back and forth like this between Pilate and the Jewish leadership several more times, the different Gospels tell us, until finally Matthew says in verse 24 that Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but in fact that it was the beginnings of what looked like could become a riot. Obviously by this time the Jewish leadership had gathered a number of probably not the Galileans who had many of them flocked to Jesus, but a number of the locals who who they were moving to call for his crucifixion. And, and it's beginning, things are beginning to get out of hand. And of course, that's the last thing that Pilate wants. It is his job to keep peace in the district and to keep the taxes flowing to Rome. And so finally, in the face of those odds, he just he just gives in. He gives in to what he knows is a miscarriage of justice. And then he goes through this elaborate demonstration of publicly washing his hands of the responsibility for the death of 
what he views as an innocent man. But, you know, I just can't help but feel like, like Lady Macbeth, who's trying to wash that cursed spot off her hands, that spot of conscience that, that he is not able to be rid of that so quickly. And in fact, ancient tradition, this is not scripture, but ancient tradition tells us that Pilate, in the end, took his own life. But we do know this, that unless there was repentance on his behalf, which there is no record of, that Pilate died and went to hell for his sin. Now, in the providence of God, the drama of this trial unfolded around three main figures. And I think there's something for us to learn, to take away this morning from each of these three figures. The first is this. It is a lesson from this man Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And in Pilate, we see the tragedy of a person who is unwilling to pay the price to follow Jesus Christ. A person unwilling to pay the price to follow Christ. Remember, Pilate had said, I find no, what? No fault in this man. But the cost of setting him free was just too much. He just, he couldn't do it. John tells us specifically how it happened. In John chapter 19, verse number 12, the Bible says that from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. He tried to evade having him put to death by offering up Barabbas. But John says that the Jewish leaders pressure him and threaten him even almost with these words. They say to him, if you release this man, Jesus, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king like this Jesus is opposed to Caesar. And if you don't take care of this threat to Caesar, then you're an enemy of Caesar. In other words, you're going to get what's coming to you, so to speak. And finally, in the end, friends, here's, here's I think exactly what Pilate did. You remember how many times Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, first you better go count the cost. You better think about what it's going to cost you. I think that's exactly what Pilate did. He counted the cost. And in his estimation of things, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth what he would lose in order to stand up for what was true and what was right, in order to acknowledge the claims of Christ, at least to acknowledge that he was an innocent man, and to stand against this act of injustice in taking his life. Pilate, in the end of the day, just could not bring himself to sacrifice his position, his security, Maybe he thought it might even cost him his life, but he just, he, he, he just could not. The cost was just too high. And you know what? Maybe in here this morning, you are not a Christian. Perhaps because you have thought that being a Christian will cost you too much. Maybe you know that becoming a Christian will cost you some friends. Maybe you know that becoming a Christian will cause a rift between you and your family. 
or being a Christian will cost you your dignity or will mean that you're going to have to acknowledge your sins and the wrongs that you've committed. And you just feel like the price is too high. I want to tell you this morning, you will lose far more, far more by trying to hold on to those things. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And you know what? Even disciples, even Jesus' disciples, I think, are sometimes tempted to compromise the truth for the sake of avoiding unpleasantness or loss. I ask you this morning, what is more precious than Jesus Christ? What is too high a price to pay for the one in whom you will inherit all things? Pilate was a man who was unwilling to pay the price to acknowledge the truth. There's a second lesson in this account that comes from our Lord Himself, from Jesus And in Christ Jesus, we have the example. We have an example of a person who completely entrusts himself to God in the face of injustice. Jesus completely entrusts himself to God in the face of injustice. You know, Peter gave, in fact, to us one of the most extended applications of the trials and the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ that's to be found in the Scriptures. We saw this when we went through this book together, 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes this, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an what? An example. That's why I said this is is what we're supposed to take from this today. That Christ is an example. He left us an example that we might follow in His steps as His disciples. And here's His example. He committed no sin. And there was no deceit in his mouth. And when he was reviled, remember, just listen to all of those Jewish leaders and the crowds that they've whipped up who are throwing these accusations at Christ, who are reviling him. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And how was he able to do all of that? Here's the final nub of it all. Look at it. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the way he did it. That's the example for you and for me. The example of a person who who entrusts himself completely to God the Father in the face of incredible injustice that's being done to you. Are you that kind of person? Are you following in the steps of your Savior? You know, there's a lot of talk about justice right now, isn't there? All around us, people want justice. And that is a good and right thing. The truth is, as the writer of Ecclesiastes observed so poignantly, 
that if your only hope for justice is in this present world right here and now, you are going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to end up walking away saying, vanity of vanities, all is vexation of spirit. Because there's a whole lot of injustice in this world. And you're going to face it. And we have to remember how the book of Ecclesiastes ends, doesn't it? Is there any hope? Sometimes people read the book of Ecclesiastes and it seems like it's all a black cloud of doom. Then you get to the end and he, he, he says this. Now, here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every work into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, I want to ask you, can you entrust yourself to a God like that? Can you trust, trust yourself this morning to a God who may not dispense His justice immediately and and, and in, in the way that you want it to happen right now? Are you willing to wait on a God like that? Do you know how trustworthy he is to sustain you even when he allows you to be unjustly persecuted and treated? And I'll tell you this, when somebody around you, somebody that you love dearly, or or you yourself, when you or someone that you love is the victim of injustice, then that's where you and I are going to be tested as to whether or not the sovereignty of God is merely a part of our creed or whether it is a deeply rooted understanding and faith in who God is. Here is a God who is sovereign over all and Christ entrusts himself in the face of such abuse that of all of the people in the world he had Nothing to deserve. And, 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 you know, from a human standpoint, just struggling, you can imagine, to, to grapple with this. And yet he knows that his father is trustworthy. That's the example he left for us. Jesus displayed this kind of confidence in the sovereign God, even in his trial before Pilate. We didn't read this. It's in one of the other Gospels, but Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me except that it is given to you from heaven. Right? Jesus was sustained in that moment in the face of incredible injustice by a belief in the sovereignty of God. Can you and I say that about the person that has wronged you or hurt you? You would have no power over me except that it's given to you from above. The apostles who followed the Lord Jesus came to display the same kind of confidence, the same kind of entrusting of themselves to the sovereignty of God when in Acts chapter 4 they were threatened to never again preach in the name of Jesus Christ. They were threatened with jail and worse perhaps if they continued And here's the way that they prayed. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, Truly they said, In this city that is in Jerusalem, we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of, as peoples of Israel. And here's what they prayed. Those evil, unjust rulers were all gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so their answer, their, their, their prayer is now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They were resting in the sovereignty of God. It wasn't for them just a theological creed. It was their deep-seated belief that sustained them through the injustices that they faced. And all of these apostles did face incredible injustice, persecution, and even martyrdom. And one day, you know, I don't know, one day you or I, one of you men at work, one of the teachers here, will find themselves misrepresented, accused, perhaps by some civil authority, or perhaps by some lawyer, or perhaps by some news outlet, for a stand that we have taken on the Word of God, find ourselves faced with incredible injustice, and how is it that we're going to stand firm without reviling in return in the face of such discrimination? And the answer is only by entrusting ourselves to the sovereign God who will in the end bring about perfect justice. That's the example that our Lord left for us. And there is thirdly a lesson from Barabbas. And the lesson here is a beautiful picture of a person whose judgment, whose condemnation is taken by a substitute. Every single gospel Tellingly, every single gospel includes the account of Barabbas' release. Now, there's a lot of things that the different gospels don't mention, right? Some will mention this, some will mention that, some will give you this detail. Every one of the gospels mentions the release of Barabbas. This is a significant thing in the telling of the trials and the crucifixion of our Lord. Because the release of Barabbas forms a kind of living parable, so to speak, a picture or a type. Now remember that the practice of amnesty, as Matthew says, during the feast, John says that that practice of releasing a criminal was tied specifically to one of the three main Jewish feasts. And it was tied to this one, which is the Passover. And you may remember that the Passover was significant because it had its roots in an ancient event that happened when Israel was delivered from their slavery in Egypt. And how did that take place? Remember that a lamb was killed. God made, God said, I'm going to bring condemnation across the land. The angel of death is going to come and destroy all of the firstborn of the land. But I will provide for my people a substitute. And if you will take that lamb and you will kill that lamb and put its blood on the door, then when I see the blood of that substitute, I will pass over you. 
You will be safe. You will be delivered. And so it is appropriate, isn't it, that at that festival where the sacrificial lambs were slain on behalf of the people, that one of the prisoners be set free. Just as the people of Egypt were set free from their bondage all of those many years before. And now, here, at this very moment, appointed by God in His perfect providence, at this very moment, is Jesus, the sacrificial Lamb of God. And I think what is perhaps most remarkable is that the man who is released was guilty of the exact crimes for which Jesus was accused and crucified. He's an insurrectionist, they said. Well, here's a man who was an insurrectionist. But he is set free, and the perfect Son of God is put on that cross. The innocent perished so that the guilty may go free. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the good news for you. The innocent was sacrificed so that you, the guilty, can go free. If you put your faith and your trust and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, the just was sacrificed for the unjust. As Peter himself says in his application of this text, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree so that we might be saved. I'll never forget when the significance of Christ's substitutionary death first dawned on me. I was just a wee kid of five or six or something along that line and sitting with my family, reading the Scriptures together, reading the story of Abraham who was commanded to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. But in the very last moment, the Lord drew his attention to a perfectly timed animal caught in the bush, this ram caught by its horns, just in the providence of God to be a substitute for the son who should have been slain. And the lamb was killed in his place as a sacrifice to God. And there in that moment, I began to understand that it was the Son of God who was sacrificed in my place. The the just for the unjust. And the Lord in his mercy saved me. I pray and I hope that in this moment, maybe there's a young person here. Maybe there's a young person or maybe there's an older person here who for the first time in your life, this has really just kind of come home to you, that all of your sin upon which should fall the judgment of God, over here, and over here is the perfect Lamb of God, and He became your substitute, the sacrifice to take your place, if you will put your faith and trust and hope in Him. And I pray that today will be the day of your salvation. The day when... The Barabbas is exchanged for the Lord Jesus, and the guilty is set free by the price that Christ has paid. Put your faith and trust in Him. Heavenly Father, please do the work of grace to open the hearts of those who hear this morning. We pray earnestly that the gospel message would have great effect. 
that a sinner would be converted today. We pray that those of us who are disciples would be strengthened by the example of our Savior and follow in His steps. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. While the pianist comes.